Mai. Good afternoon and welcome to Perspective on Manx Radio. I'm Dolan Mercer. This week, bosses at the Financial Services Authority were under the spotlight as they gave evidence in public to Tinwald's Economic Policy Review Committee. That panel is tasked with scrutinising the work of Cabinet Office, Treasury and the Department for Enterprise, as well as some other organisations, including the FSA. Karen Badgero and Lillian Boyle, CEO and Chair respectively, spoke about the authority's last year of work to MHK's Chris Robertshaw, Tim Baker and Jason Morehouse. As a regulator, the FSA is responsible for reducing financial crime in the Isle of Man, among other things. Lillian Boyle began by reflecting on the last 12 months. The committee will recall that last year we brought to their attention a number of initiatives, both in respect of the governance of the authority and various stakeholder engagement initiatives. In this meeting, we hope to have the opportunity to highlight how we've continued in a number of these developments over the past year. At the end of November 2019, one of our members stood down to take up another commercial role and accordingly, as I'm sure members of the committee may well be aware from the papers for the forthcoming Tinwold, Treasury will seek, subject to approval of Tinwold, the appointment of two new members for our board. If Tinwold grants this approval, this will take our board numbers to nine, including the Chief Executive. The board has extended the Chief Executive's contract for a further two years to run from 1st of November 2020 to 31st October 2022. One development that may be particularly noteworthy is that over the past 12 months uh, we have introduced what the authority refers to as the DMP, which is its enforcement decision-making process. A system whereby we intervene at an early justified stage in issues to help prevent unacceptable risks crystallising. Where a lack of fitness and propriety is demonstrated or where we have serious concerns about regulatory failings, we will consider whether enforcement action is appropriate. As a high-level overview of the process, if an investigation is commenced by us as the authority, this may lead to enforcement action being taken against regulated designated entities or individuals. The authority has published the aforementioned DMP and the DMP clearly sets out the staged processes which the authority will follow in most enforcement cases and indeed the specific enforcement powers to which the DMP applies. In addition to explaining the decision-making process, the DMP also introduced for the first time in a public document the concept of settlement in the authority's enforcement cases. As we've stated previously, the authority really encourages regulated entities and individuals to be open and honest when addressing regulatory failures. For our part, in taking any enforcement action, the authority will always be mindful of its regulatory objectives. That's securing an appropriate degree of protection for policyholders, members of retirement benefit schemes and customers of persons carrying on a regulated activity, the reduction of financial crime, the maintenance of confidence in the island's financial services, insurance and pension industries through effective regulation supporting the island's economy and its development as an international financial centre. A decision to impose a discretionary civil penalty will be made by the authority in accordance with the DMP that I referred to. And to date, there have been three instances of discretionary civil penalties being applied and details of these have been provided on our website. We believe by utilising our powers in this manner, the authority will be seen to have taken action in an appropriate manner and the detail provided in our press releases um, for each case will allow other licence holders to understand the issues which have arisen and to be alert as to how breaches may occur. The transparency in regard to these matters, we believe, will help assist licence holders and designated businesses in forging a more compliant culture, helping to raise standards across the various sectors of the industry that we regulate. We recognise the importance of maintaining and achieving consumer protection and as such I will hand over to our Chief Executive to expand on our initiatives in this area. 
I think one of the most visible things or visible campaigns that we've embarked on as a as an organization. Oh, I should have said my name. Sorry, Karen Badgero, for the record. Um, uh, we, what we've embarked on has been the work on the Pension Matters campaign, and it really was around highlighting to our local residents issues around awareness of financial planning, issues of awareness around of pension scams and frauds, and just generally raising um, the general knowledge of, of the population. This year, we were found ourselves on a Saturday at Tinwald Mills, but providing consumer literature to um, unsuspecting shoppers as they entered Tinwald Mills. But it was quite helpful because we were able to talk to people and talk about their level of awareness, provide some literature around different consumer matters in terms of how to complain about your service of a financial institution, you know, what things you should be aware of if someone cold calls you. And I would say generally we had a very good reception and it was a good way for our staff to engage with the general public. Um, the staff um, proudly um, continue to support Balakameen School in their Certificate in Financial Studies program. And so we provide support through running um, short information and sort of educational sessions around things like how does the financial system work in the Isle of Man relative to the UK. Um, what financial services and products are available to you. And it's really, again, raising financial literacy at that very important sort of youth age. Um, another piece we worked on this past year was really updating our complaints um, guidance on the website. So again, making it a bit more visible to the general public how they can complain about financial services. Now, we're not the ombudsman, and the first port of call for a client is always the institution themselves, but where they've sort of reached their end of their tether in terms of a particular issue, we will refer them to the ombudsman, or we have a process to deal with that complaint as well internally. And so we've tried to clarify some of the language about what they should expect from us, from the ombudsman, as part of that complaints guidance. I think most recently we attended an event on vulnerable clients and are, again a really important part of our makeup of our, our demographic of the Isle of Man and again just trying to speak about the issues around vulnerabilities in client groups and we have various provisions in our rule book in our insurance legislation but it was trying to bring home to practitioners some of the things they should be thinking about when they engage with vulnerable clients be it vulnerability by virtue of age by virtue of health or some level of impairment so just trying to bring home that you'll have to tailor your needs for you know, various, various uh, members of the public. As I mentioned, less visible perhaps to the public is the work that we do around our prudential and our risk frameworks, our regulatory frameworks to ensure that consumers are protected. Um, it's about making sure there's appropriate capital and liquidity sitting in our financial institutions, risk-based capital, making sure there's proper governance and risk and controls sitting within those institutions, and that work is ongoing. A couple of areas where we've, we've focused on has been, of course, the Insurance Core Principle Project and work on conduct of business, so making sure that charging structures and information to consumers is friendly and available and transparent. And we've done a fair bit of work with the industry over the last couple of years to introduce the new uh, conduct business code, and we're now testing against that, that code. Um, the bank recovering resolution um, bill, which is before the House, I guess the first reading was on the 11th, um, is again another means of protecting consumers because again, um, we have a, a vibrant banking community, we have a number of branches, some incorporated banks, but um, we need to have the appropriate frameworks for both recovery in the event that a bank can a recovery plan and the resolution of the bank in case there's a trigger event. And so it's very important because as, as a supervisor, you need a number of tools at your disposal to deal with a bank in distress. And as well, because it is an international framework, we need to be, um, you know, have the appropriate framework locally so that we're able to engage internationally and cross-border in the event of a bank, uh, bank trigger event. So a really important piece of, of legislation and um, as you will know from the, uh, the first reading that the resolution authority will sit within the FSA once the bill is, is given uh, as passed. Thank you very much. Um, now, the decision-making process, what's the reaction of, the, of your finances service sector to the way that's gone? Have you had any feedback on that? One of the things we did do when we developed the DMP was to really spend time with the industry. So Tom, our general counsel, is here today and did a series of, of seminars. And of course, you really don't understand the impact until you see the outcome. And I think I'd say positive because I think part of the end result of the settlement process that, that our chair spoke about was that in the public statement we try to state very clearly what the issues were, 
so this is not a spurious sort of um, event um, what the learning outcomes were from that lessons learned for industry and of course it's a settlement process in some cases where we've agreed with the license holder you know the facts of the case um, the appropriate sort of settlement uh, award and it serves as a reminder to others that I know the the requirements uh, aren't there to be met it will always cause some concern because people will be worried about their book of business but um, I think it's been a, a, a good strong show that you know we do remediate but where appropriate we will take further action and we do I've recently been to quite a few um, events where, much to my surprise, um, the discussions and presentations have been about that, not from ourselves as an authority, but from other mm-hmm. organisations. And actually, they have been incredibly um, helpful to us because they have said, you know, this system is coming in, you have to understand what it is that they have to do, how they're going to have to behave, but also reinforcing a great deal that if you have a problem, it's best to come and talk to the authority. And also to learn from the issues that have arisen with the people um, who we have done settlements with. And in several instances, I've had comments that they found the press releases which we have made and the statements where we've explained in quite detail what some of the issues have Mm. been. Um, People are using that as learning points. As as we all recall, the Anaman was the first jurisdiction to be subject to Money Val version 2. Since then, are you aware of version 2 being applied to others and, and the reported outcomes? And how yeah, I mean, just a few yeah, the on that. fifth, round, fifth uh, round Money Val has been applied to a number of other jurisdictions, and I think maybe I may have talked about it last time, but of the of all the jurisdictions where it's been applied, it's either been FATF or FATF regional body, so Money Bell is our regional body, but um, about 85% of the countries that were assessed in the fifth round had um, were enhanced follow-up. So, for example, Canada is an example, enhanced follow-up. Uh, our colleagues in Jersey or Guernsey have not been subject as of yet to a fifth round um, assessment, and what is happening right now is FATF is taking a bit of a step back, and they're undertaking a strategic review of the program. Program. I think if I could use the word success of the program, having that many uh, countries in enhanced follow-up is quite problematic for a international body because um, unless and until they come back to do an on-site review, you stay on enhanced follow-up. So in terms of technical compliance, we've met virtually all, I think maybe there's one outstanding technical compliance, but in terms of effectiveness, we'll never get off the enhanced follow-up list until they come back on site, and they recognize that can be quite problematic. So this year, I, I participate in the group of International Financial Center Supervisors, and we um, it's all a, a series of overseas territories and crown dependencies, and our chair uh, lobbied FATF to become an observer status and be able to input into the strategic review, because we have a very strong view of the approach in smaller jurisdictions and proportionality and we've been granted observer status so we will have a chance to make comment on the how the FATF sort of rolls out the next set of programs in terms of their methodology mm-hmm. so we'll be working with cabinet office Karen Ramsey's group to make sure that the message that we send from um, Isle of Man is appropriate to Isle of Man and I'm sure there'll be some jostling at the committee level at, at the uh, with the CDs and overseas territories because we all have different views so a long-winded answer but um, and you know we've done all the things that we think are appropriate for um, all the open items. Uh, we will be focusing more on the effectiveness um, in terms of our inspection program over the next few years because we can't assume that we won't have another review. This committee and certainly you were, were subject to engagement with the, the EU Tax Three Committee mm-hmm. some time back. Um, it sort of raises the question from a layman's perspective: Where does the element now sit now in in, in terms of Brexit? What's the a layman's view of where this whole thing's going? Can I go first? Yeah. I mean, obviously, um, what we have tried to do um, through all of the uh, meetings that we have with um, the stakeholder bodies is actually talk to them and say, you know, what do you think? Do you think the Brexit, as we were running up to it, what is the impact for your organisations? And because of the uncertainty, the general uncertainty, um, people have yet to come and say to us um, that it's impacting on them. I think last year 
I was asked the question about uh, the impact on the life assurance sector, and I also, yeah. I think, highlighted at that point that it is much more of a, a global industry and therefore is really taking business from the Middle East, the Far East, and almost anywhere other than, than Europe. But I think what it sort of leads me on to a bit with, with the Brexit thing is there are so many other political dimensions in the world which can impact the businesses that we are in. Um, and I would say that the coronavirus is, is one where you would probably see um, industries being concerned about that, the people who are operating in the Far East at the moment. So in each of their sectors, people will look at what is happening, but they are generally speaking um, covered by virtue of the fact that they do a very diversified business. Kind of going back to the Brexit one, I think we would be generally waiting to see what happens with the UK mm. and in particular the negotiations with the City of London at the moment mm. as to um, whether or not they will get um, equivalents. Yeah. Following up on that point about uncertainty, I mean, my experience is uncertainty always creates a negative impact because it stops things happening. People um, defer making decisions or they make decisions that de-risk the situation. Um, are you seeing any any evidence of that from your perspective? I would say early days we did. I think people have sort of um, moved on in some ways because they, they've had to. I mean, in terms of, and we've, like, for example, in the banking world, we've gone through ring fencing. Those are decisions related to UK requirements, and we've, you know, enacted those. Um, you know, we're trying to pursue a solvency to equivalency for the, in the European market, and we will continue to forge on. It may not be as uh, open door as it used to be, but we continue to forge on. And two weeks ago, one of my staff members went to Brussels to meet with one of the European uh, people from the European Commission on that matter. So I think we just forge on. And I think as a chair, our chair mentioned, it's just a matter of, of, of telling, someone telling us things have changed because not a lot has changed so far for us in the financial services, but it will be now the most recent, I think, noise coming out of um, the UK is that that may change. You mentioned the banking sector, and uh, one of the issues that's been brought, brought to our attention is about uh, availability of, of banking, particularly for some of those vulnerable groups that you that you mentioned earlier. So particularly those who, for example, uh, may not have a fixed abode or may have, may have uh, enjoyed a stay in, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in, in prison, mm-hmm. for example, yeah. Yeah. where they can't demonstrate a new address. There's no right to bank as, 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 as such. Yeah. And um, that is quite a basic, basic need for people in vulnerable situations. We are aware that there's a, there's a very basic products offering offered by a couple of the local banks but others others don't offer anything and what's the FSA's view view on that I mean clearly it's an area where the market's not um, not delivering uh, and, and that has implications for uh, people and, and, and for society I've been involved with a few of the MHKs on this matter, uh, Mr. Morehouse for one, and Mr. Watterson for another. Um, and uh, I mean, going back a few years, the Manx Credit Union was one um, approach um, at trying to get a credit union that was more accessible to a larger part of the population. And um, at the time, as you know, it was uh, a bit of a bit of a reach because the legislation had been so outdated. So we do have the legislation was changed to open the you know, open for business for credit unions. We have. One one, we understand they are offering a variety of products, though limited, absolutely, um, in terms of loans tied into social assistance to provide some level of capacity to people who may are more vulnerable. I think on the, um, the ex-offender one, um, which I think you're alluding to, Mr. Baker, that um, we have been working with the Banking Association um, alongside ourselves to look at sort of the provision of service to ex-offenders because we recognize that's an area that's been quite difficult for people who have um, some blemish on their on their record in terms of getting banking services. No solutions as of yet, but we are certainly alive to the issue. The banking association is working as well, alive to the issue, and recognizing that it's always that fine line of the the regulator sort of commerciality um, in terms of where where our remit sort of starts and stops and commerciality. I think one of the other issues we talked about the um, children, you know, and the availability of of uh, banking services to children, and it's something again the banking association is alive to. We're meeting within a couple of weeks, but um, 
it's 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 always going to be a bit more challenging um, because they will make commercial decisions based on their view on risk, and we don't necessarily have a right to banking provision here that people you know fundamentally. But we do believe, and this is why having a wider variety of products available in the marketplace will hopefully close off some of those gaps. But I won't solve it absolutely. So, so it is an issue. It's an issue that's popped up in various ways, and and it's popped up in you know, ex-offenders, popped up in children, popped up in in lower income groups as well. In terms of not having a, you know the availability of credit, for example, that's another one, and that's why the Manx Credit Unions are looking at sort of smaller loans as an example to fill that gap. I, I think also. Um was the Department of Home Affairs, I think, is involved, particularly on the uh, ex-offenders. So, I mean, I think there's there's a wider group than uh, partic- than uh, the FSE sure, who are involved yeah. in this. But it's, it, these are, these are the sorts of issues where it's that joint perspective across yeah. lots of different um, areas that actually lead, lead to a solution. How how is it dealt with in other in other jurisdictions? Has, has anybody you know got a, a perhaps a banker of last resort type facility or um, any any kind of entities that exist with, with these sort of capabilities that we could learn from? Well, there is, I, I would say in the UK, there's a much wider range of credit unions and particularly developed, I think, to deal with a number of um, social issues. Um, we don't have that uh, maturity of that market here at the moment. Now, I'm not saying that is totally the answer, but I think if you looked at the UK, um, the fact that the credit unions have been developed over a, a much longer period of time and also from initiatives uh, where it was people who were unable to um, uh, access financial um, institutions in any other way. With regard to things like owning bank accounts, closing bank accounts, is the ombudsman who kind of deals with those issues? Do you get feedback from the ombudsman each year in terms of this is an issue, this is a concern? Can we work together to come up with a solution? Yeah, I mean, we meet with the ombudsman whether or not we have those particular discussions. I think maybe if I can answer a little bit differently, one of the things we are going out with starting April of this year is our, as a banking conditions survey and what is, in, is intended to do to understand about the marketplace, the extent to which um, demand is being driven by client groups for certain products. And it's not a quantitative one, it's how many inquiries, but it's like, you know, a lot not many, you know, none. Um, how many, um, the risk appetite of banks in relation to the offering of those products, so understanding if banks are starting to contract the credit or the deposit offerings in the system. Um, the other questions that are asked are around, are there certain things in the environment, economic environment or uh, head office that are driving a change in either the appetite of the bank or the appetite of the consumer for these products. So it's on our website, actually. I'm glad to send a copy to you, and it's starting, um, our first return will come in April. And again, it's a more of a qualitative um, um, study or uh, re- return, but it's going to start to give us some information around those sorts of things. What's happening? Because we have stats, so we see how many accounts, you know, how many accounts, how many much mortgage lending, how much you know corporate lending. But it's understanding from each of the banks, and this is going to, only going to be for the largest banks to start off with. We're just going to digest the big four. To understand, but it will give us a better sense of what's happening in the marketplace, and then, you know, and to the extent that we have solutions, you know, that's uh, it's it's solutions to discussing them with banks because again, it's their product offerings. But understanding what is driving demand and what is driving appetite in the community for those products. So, in terms of that review, you'll be asking banks for the percentage of various. It won't be actually not percentage and interesting. It's it's more of a, a sort of those five different. On a gradient, I know a lot, not many, none, decline. So it's really get a little bit of a sentiment of what's happening. And it's going to be, it's a quarterly return. So it'll be a matter of collecting over a period of time. Now, interesting, what do we do with that information? It'll help us understand sort of what's happening in the banking community. Um, it might be useful for us to discuss with other colleagues in terms of the banking association on a general trend basis. Um, other interested parties, just again, it's more of a, what are the conditions for banking on the Isle of Man? So it will take a bit of a time series, I think, to have a bit of a story as well. You know, it's it's because it really is geared off the fact what changes. So it goes the last three months and what you forecast for the next three months ahead in terms of changes to the conditions. At the moment, you collect information on things like the number of mortgages yep. and related issues. Yep. When it came to the children's bank accounts, that was something that wasn't collected. 
Yeah. But the banks themselves said in terms of a general figure that could be doable, and you said you would go away and discuss as anything. So we're seeing the our next meeting since we've had the correspondence is in two weeks with the Banking Association. We're going to raise that with them at that point in time. Is this a, a reasonable uh, piece of data that they can easily collect? So yes, yeah. If I can, if I can summarise, we've got yourselves regulating the industry, mm. and we've got the industry providing the providing the products. You're identifying some perhaps some gaps or some issues through such as the one we've talked about already who who actually then picks that up and how does that how does that lead to a better outcome for Isle of Man PLC if, if, if you like because there's a danger that you can see things but actually they're not within the scope of your regulatory role but there's clear value in your perspective and, and the insight that you have how do we translate that into somebody doing something positive to actually move the game forward that's a, that's a good question. I mean, some of the responses are through policy responses. So going back to sort of the credit union, the genesis of that was around the fact there was an underservice market and there was there was a possibility through legislation to um, allow for the establishment of a credit union. We've only had one credit union take up in the Isle of Man. So again, it's driven by, again, there's commerciality involved in that as well. Um, so policy responses, policy responses sit with us and also sit with Treasury collectively in terms of what would be an appropriate policy response. I know the Banking Association has been in discussions, you know, and this is you know, with Treasury around different product offerings that may have some uh, benefit or advantage um, to consumers. So again, it comes through the policy framework that we can look at making changes that may um, be more inclusive um, in terms of certain cohorts of clients on the Isle of Man. So there's, uh, there's always going to be a bit of a, a, a time lag gap. And again, it goes back to the right to bank. I think also, you know, what I said earlier on about um, Department of Home Affairs and I'm sure the probation system as well um, all interact with each other and perhaps it, some of it does have to come through a much more joined up approach on these things, which I'm pretty sure that as an MHK you're more than aware of these issues when they arise, but it is, um, I think you do need a lot of the different organisations um, who will have contact with those individuals to be thinking together. You nearly mentioned silos. Then I didn't. <laughs> no, I know how I know how that worries you. <laughs> and I, but it, no, I, I think it's a very serious point. I mean, the one piece that's not as, but it is about access to serve. It is about access to services. It was a good example. Was on the credit card issue, and that had been a big issue for a period of time where access to credit cards, and it's a good example where I think the Department for Enterprise ourselves. You know, working with the banks, and it was really around raising the awareness and understanding of what was really available. So people are much more, I think, au fait with where, you know, they can get a credit card. Um, you know, what's available in the marketplace as well. So it, it, around the margins of making sure people are aware that if I, you know, what what kind of business can I undertake with this institution? What kind of business can I undertake with that institution? And I think the credit card piece have for us, and I was talking to Mark Lewin this last week, has largely gone silent. It seems to be an issue that's been, you know, we haven't got an abundance, but people are now aware of where they can apply for a credit card and get a credit card. So again, a gap in service was identified and there was some work around to raise awareness, do some calling around, seeing what's available. And it's been largely a muted um, issue for the last, I say, year for us, certainly, and for Department for Enterprise. In terms of that availability, there is still some concern. Mm -hmm. and it's going back to the credit checks, checkers like Experian, and their ability to do the reviews on Manx residents mm -hmm. and Manx addresses. Yeah. Is that something that's coming through to you or...? No. Just also thinking, haven't Experia actually been dropped by quite a few of the banks recently um, as a credit checking agency? I thought all of that had um, changed a bit, particularly after, um, I think, the past 12 months, I think. So I'm not no, sure no, that they're so active in that market now. Right. I'd, just, I'd just be slightly cautious about this thing going muted, as your <laughs> phrase you used. I mean, if people didn't... The, the average person on the street didn't understand why they couldn't. They might start to feel, well, maybe it's me, and they, and they would be less yeah, less inclined uh, yeah. inclined to, to, to express their opinions yeah. because somehow that person over there could get something I can't. And what is it? So I, I'd just be cautious about assuming that the thing's gone 
quiet. Yes, I guess I can only respond to what comes across our office and what comes across our desk. And we have not, this has not been an issue that's been raised with us, mm. I'd say in the last, you know, almost a year. And just in, in chatting, because we did work last year with DFE about a year ago on this to sort of get a sense of, okay, what, what was missing? You know, why were some companies leaving the Isle of Man? Um, you know who was off who had product offering still on credit cards and so when I say muted it's muted from the perspective that's something that's not being um, uh, articulated to the regulator and act in fact you know DFE felt that it had gone quite quite but yeah. take your counsel um, yeah so have further players removed themselves from the market recently or has it stabilized at a, at a particular my understanding is it's stabilized it's stabilized in terms of the, uh, the credit card offerings yeah 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 um the, the, the committee's been very very exercised in recent months over the future of the post office and it's very much a, a high profile issue politically now and it's growing i, I would say almost by the week as as um sub post offices disappear and, and if we drew all the strings of this discussion that we've ha been having so far about uh, non-availability of pensions for certain sectors, non-availability of banking, um, the, the committee is going back to this subject again, having produced one report, which um, if you ever get the chance to read it, we'd be grateful for, you, for any comments that you've, you've got on it. But we're going back to the subject because with an intention to produce a second report okay. more specifically the, the first report uh, that we produced um, w was was more identifying the environment that the post office was sitting in and the, and the future threats but the, the next time we come to it we're, we'll be more inclined to try and uh, encapsulate a series of recommendations which we hope uh, Timwald will want to carefully consider but one of the specific areas that we're interested in is the further expansion and development of the MyCard, which came in very successfully, very quietly. Um, involved in it at the time, I can hardly recall one person saying that there's a problem here. Um, it was, it was. We believe it was successful, and still retain the view that it was successful at the time because the post office um, uh, reputation and trust level is and was high and it created a situation where benefits were transferred from I think it was between one and two million paper transactions down to a single card. We have become aware uh, very recently that the MyCard is capable of an awful lot more than, than it is actually doing and in simplistic terms um, it has uh, what I would call 20 26 pockets mm. or mm. potential facilities enable, enabling facilities we, and we've only opened two or three of them the, I guess two or three very simplistic um, but we've become aware that, that the my card can engage in being a card which will which would have the capacity between the the post office desk and the user the customer to move into into forms of banking and what we want to ask you is what would the implications be of the post office moving into being a local banking service for an element of society who cannot get bank accounts who want to use the post office who are finding that banks are closing are there different levels of, of uh, at which that service can operate or is there just one license level could could you talk There's to us about that please it's a interesting proposition um there are three different license levels in the banking um so the one one is is more of your retail bank can take deposits it's part of the deposit compensation scheme um, the one twos are all the alternative banks, which the one twos, yes. alternative banks, and they're the that was a new banking license introduced about three years ago. Um, more again, not part of the depositor compensation scheme, more aimed at sort of corporate deposits. Right. Um, so a little different type. And the one three is the representative office, which is more a foreign bank coming into the Isle of Man, really to engage and refer business back to their home country. So they can't take deposits. They can't actually, they don't transact with a client, but more of a referral 
basis and often a one three is a way for a bank to dip its toes into an environment to see if there's any sort of interest in their banking services so from the limited description I you know you provided but I'm sure there's a lot more in the report um, you know would be likely a one one retail banking license so so one one would have to have the uh, depositors compensation protection in it as a one one you would be part of the DCS yeah okay. and um, so that comes with it, of course, all the requirements around um, governance control, capital. Um, there's a myriad of, of licensing requirements, and it, it depends how you describe the becoming a bank, because it's what that means can be quite broad. Do, do we have the flexibility there is in the UK? Because I think in the UK there's been a banking system created for the post office by picking yeah. back in onto the existing banking licenses with the other banks. So the banks have grafted this new entity, which could be the MyCard, but they're actually, mm. they've got banking licenses yeah. with that. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I mean, is it possible? I, I don't know. I mean, it... it uh... There was an apocryphal story I was, uh, I was uh, told about the post-Lehmans in Ireland where the Irish banks imploded that the Irish um, were in a position where they withdrew a lot of money from the leading banks and it went to the post office mm -hmm. uh, because the post office was trusted and seen to yeah. be an extension of the government, which is the very thing that saved the, yeah. the retail banks in the UK, effectively post-Lehman's. Because of the relationship of the post office with government, would the process, in your view, be incredibly onerous to achieve a simple banking facility, i.e. not doing mortgages and, and all these other facilities, but just being effectively a savings bank? Well, I think that's how you got the trustee savings banks in the UK, wasn't it? Yes. A long time ago. And forgive me for saying so, but is, is there not a value in perhaps talking to counterparts in the UK in terms of what they have done with the post office to get an understanding perhaps of the criteria that goes round the facility that they, they are providing or whatever. I mean, at the same time, I would say, I mean, in many instances, certainly I know um, where I come from, the post offices are now operated out of pubs and um, mm. uh, small village shops as well. So that there are different dimensions to yeah, this yeah. whole aspect. But I understand the social mm -hmm. concerns that you're you're mm -hmm. raising with us. But it's not something that's really ever come into our discussions with anybody other than yourselves now. And I think we would be very interested to to read the report and to understand um, where you're coming from on this. Well, perhaps we could we could send you a copy of the report at, at a draft stage and and, and have you mm -hmm. feedback on on that, Jason. Just in terms of the one point one licences, mm -hmm. have you to apply for the full licence, or could you apply for an aspect of it? You can. We can put conditions on a licence. So, for All example, right. you'd get a one one, but we'd have conditions you you can't lend money or you can't. So there are conditions right. that you can put on. It has to make sense the conditions, so I don't know what it would look like, but you're able to restrict the license. So if we described, that's a good question. Thank you, Jason. You got to the point better than I did. Uh, so if if in our report, in our draft report, we describe what we would want in a simplistic sense to to open the door to this, mm -hmm. you could offer a commentary back to us on that. Is that fair? I think we yeah, we could yeah. I think we'd have a look and where we can. I mean, it's um, and what's within you know what we see within the remit of the of the um, of the legislation. Yeah, I think uh, it's it, possible. It'd be really key for us to understand yeah. what what facilities it is that you're really looking for here. Well, we we'd ha we have to examine all of that, yeah. but uh, in a sense, we, we're grateful for your your offer there to assist us through the process. Oh, yeah, we'll have a look through and see what we can provide comment on, and I think the. Um, you know, again, going back to you know, the Manx Credit Union, was the credit union model was seen to be a model to get into smaller communities, small, more sort of localized opportunities, you know, on a very limited scale. But I recognize that in small parts of the island, small communities, it's more difficult. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. so. And the one area we also uh, failed to, to mention was that we're very much more in a, in a digital world where people are expected to be able to use, uh, f you know, devices, but there's still a significant number of people who are uncomfortable or unable for whatever reason to, to enter into that area. So we've got a lot of work to do in a quite a short period of time as a committee to, to arrive at a point where we can 
develop recommendations but we do need help and, and guidance and, and pointers as to you know that's not possible or you'll need this or yeah. we okay. suggest that I might mention that the UK did a piece of work last year on a, on a ca- moving to a cashless society because there has been a move afoot the whole as your point is on, on digital offerings and really interesting observation and I'll send that report to, to you because it's quite interesting observations in terms of um, you know um, limited um, broadband Wi-Fi capability in some communities where you, you just don't have the level of access to services and some of the things they didn't think about when moving to a cashless society came out to fruition when they started to close down different you know banks started to close ATMs were only available and just a worthwhile read to see some of the perils of going more digital because that is often the answer that we look at in a you know, bigger economies let's go digital everyone can go online they can go to a cash point machine that's not always possible well, of course I mean the Swedes or I think it was the Swedes yeah. are almost completely cashless and then they frighten themselves now because of cyber interventions yeah. Yeah. as being yeah. much more devious than, than armies and, and weapons and things because it can logistically you can shut the whole thing down yeah. it's extraordinary yeah. things are moving so yeah. quickly it's um, it's quite amazing but one of your uh, your newsletters you you touched on cyber security what where where do you stand with regard to the Alan Mann's cyber security yeah. position as of now um i mean we've engaged a fair bit with the office of cyber security which is Alan Mann's central government's cyber security I guess I say division or team now. Um, you know, we've had a cyber, you know, a series of cyber breaches over the last number of years. The most recent was, you know, one of our banks. Um, we we do have guidance for industry. We issued in 2016 on cybersecurity, and you know, based on recent events and learnings, we're going to reissue that guidance just because it needs to be refreshed. Not many things have changed in all of us in the world of the same sorts of risk as this, but it, it's important to have a look at your guidance. Um, I think we learned a lot this last well in terms of the kinds of information we need um, in a cyber event uh, that makes us, provides us a bit more certainty around, you know, continuity of business, business disruption for the institution. So we were quite fortunate um, that this was readily available to us and it's given us sort of pause to think about what kinds of things we'd ask for next time around because there's always going to be a next time. A lot of the focus internationally has gone more now to operational resilience because there's a recognition that you can't um, fully guard against a cyber attack but you want to be in a position as a community a government a bank a life insurance company to recover from a cyber event mm-hmm. so the focus is much more on business continuity and the resiliency of a firm to keep going so and so that's been uh, will be more of our focus going forward as well i think i think people have recognized that they aren't always going to be able to prevent it no. so it's really now about it will happen and therefore um how do you recover from it from a regulatory point of view, how, how's things going with blockchain development on the Isle of Man? One of the things we committed to the blockchain office uh, is to provide a resource um, from time to time when needed because one of the questions that would come up at the extent to which what falls within the regulatory parameters are not in the other perimeter. And so we provided one of our policy resources on an ad needed basis to the blockchain office for the be- the purpose of providing advice guidance when an application would come across their doorstep that had any sort of uh, touched on any of the boundaries of financial services. And so that's been quite helpful. Um, so we provide that resource. Uh, in turn, they have given us a resource to help look at our guidance around our, um, for, for our license holder community around what things touch our regulatory perimeter. So there's not, you know, sometimes we, we use the, you know, regulatory speak in some of our, our, our literature. And so this resource has been sitting in our office on so common until the end of March to help look at all of our guidance and say, you know, is it clear in terms of what, you know, if I do this, then this happens in terms of um, blockchain. The presentation today that we had blockchain do was really helpful. It was to take blockchain away from the oh-so-bad crypto world, which, you know, yeah, is, yeah. I'm saying that, you know, um, in jest, but, and talk about blockchain application in, in different ways, you know, in supply chain um, uh, management, in uh, 
provenance of goods and services and smart contracts. So it just opened up the mind of the staff to the fact that blockchain can be used for all kinds of different purposes. Yeah, yeah, and it was, it, was, it was fascinating. So, um, you know, we provide support where necessary. Um, there, I understand from the blockchain office there haven't been a lot of applications that actually touch on financial services. It's, it's been more around the other more interesting areas, I would say. Um, oh, and, a bit finance, uh, <laughs> surely. So, uh, so it's, it's been a good, good working relationship. I think it's, it's worked well. Yeah. Good, good. Um, ring fencing now has been with us in the Alaman for a, a little while. Uh, any any hiccups or problems that you've noticed? Sorry, ring, fencing? ring fencing. Oh, ring fencing. No, I mean, we've gone through the, the round of changes um, in the last year, completed as of December. Right. Um, I think, you know, fairly smooth process. We've been fortunate because, you know, we had a, certainly a long lead time into the, the deadline for the final arrangements for ring fencing. Um, we have a good working relationship with the UK as well. So we've been in and it, Jersey and Guernsey, so we're all very, we're all in the same boat, so to speak. Yeah. And a lot of our firms, our banks in particular, our banks, um, you know, have sort of a dual, you know, Jersey, Isle of Man. So we've worked together with the Crowns and in our engagement with the UK. So there have been um, no hiccups, major hiccups. As the, uh, changing the subject, as the, um, as the economy um, in terms of availability of staffing has sort of risen to almost full employment. Um, has that impacted upon you much? Have you managed to avoid significant churn in your authority, staff-wise, or you're smiling? <laughs> I think we're like everybody else, where yeah. um, you know people will be um, tempted away from you by yeah. um, different offers, um, and you have to be, I suppose, fleet of foot to try to maintain yeah. the people that you have, keep giving them training, and keep giving them interesting jobs and and unquestionably it is challenging and when we talk to um, the industry groups they all say exactly the same thing that they are you know basically all chasing the same same group of people. Do you tend to recruit from the Isle of Man or are you, are you reaching away as well and or both. I'm just but thinking that you're talking to a Canadian and a Scottish person. And then the Irish fellow sitting over there. And what? An Irish person. But um, I think that we always advertise here, first of all, and in yeah. some instances, in fact, a lot of instances, we manage to fill those positions locally. But if it's very, very specialised, then we have had to go off island. Mm -hmm. Thank you. With regard to the Bank Recovery Resolution Bill, once that comes through, is going to potentially require massive flexibility in crisis conditions. Given what you've just said, have we got have you got the ability to expand and respond yeah. to such a situation? Yeah, and yeah, I mean it's it's a that's a fantastic question because we'll be very small. So the 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 authority will be a resolution authority. We'll be a very small team of resolution authority individuals too. Um, because we do have to have very important ethical Chinese walls between supervision, our supervision teams and our, our um, banking recovery and resolution teams. And what typically happens in a resolution event or a recovery event, a resolution event more so, is that you tend to outsource. So, so some jurisdictions will have standby arrangements with service providers. And so um, you may engage with a PwC or a KPMG to have that that you know be able to expand your staff quickly so as part of our <coughs> operational <coughs> readiness arrangements we are talking to um, Jersey and Guernsey as to whether or not we should sort of have shared standby arrangements in some ways you know because um, sometimes you keep them on contract big jurisdictions do like Canada has them on contract and they'll do um, a stress testing exercise a desktop every year with you around what would it look like to do a resolution in your jurisdiction it, it can be in a very expensive resource to keep on standby other jurisdictions will just have a four more of a nominal relationship so you have to be able to absolutely scale up in a resolution event um, and we'll just ours is going to be focused on sort of keeping their um, recovery plans current because that's a responsibility of the bank keeping a resolution plans current that's a responsibility of the supervisor or the resolution authority and then being able to have your tentacles out for resources in the event you actually need them from your update newsletter that recently published, um, you, you signal you've, you've done the consultation uh, around some revised uh, legislation in terms of financial services amendment bill. Um, so just looking very much for the overview of what you're looking to achieve with that and how we might expect that to 
play out over the over the next year or so. So over the course of the last few years, we always collect sort of pieces of, of legislation that need to be up, pieces of our legislation that need to be updated. So we did, this is going to be an omnibus sort of piece of legislation to, uh, to modernize and update certain elements of the, of the, um, of the acts. So the, the FSA, the Insurance Act. I think one of the pieces that comes out in the, um, I'm going to pull my little notes out, comes out in the amendment bills around civil penalties for individuals. And this was one that had been something we had been thinking about for a while. We have a range of sort of tools available to supervisors and to the FSA around um, um, enforcement in, uh, remediation and we didn't have civil penalties for individuals so this was one that we had considered you know quite seriously and have introduced so that's one of the pieces that's going into the omnibus I'm gonna have to pull my piece on the uh, on the legislation because I don't have my full notes here on all the elements just give me a moment I mean suffice to say um, we only get um, so many slots yeah for doing yeah. the legislation so um, it's a consolidation um, act for us in terms of picking up areas where we need to, to fix and to do some amendments so hopefully um, what it will do is yeah. it will make things easier for us or correct any issues where we've found it um, more difficult to work and it shouldn't be particularly onerous onto any particular sector or anything like that but it should alleviate us in terms and of actually carrying out our functions so that's what it's designed for and is it something that will significantly change the landscape for your uh, organizations you regulate or is it, is it minor tidying up it is mo it is more to um, make people's roles a bit easier in terms of some of the work that we want to do um, but I don't think we had any issues when we did the consultation no, no. Um, I can't think of any particular areas that were concerned I mean when we go out to industry, we always explain to them exactly why we're bringing through such legislation. And as I say, as you will well know, it, it's tight to get um, legislation through. So you are looking to accumulate and try and put through as many points as you possibly can in one amendment act. Absolutely. Do you have a clear sense of time scale on, on, on this? You've done the consultation, so... Do you have a target date? Or? We're, yeah, we're just going in to get our legislative spot shortly, so a paper's going to come in in the next few weeks, which will set out the parameters you know, of the bill and looking for the legislative spot. So it should be over the next, I would say, within probably not the next year, probably into 2021, more than likely. Um, but just in terms, I just pulled out my little note. Apologies on that. But um, and also as well, it often um, one of the things as well, it sort of formalizes some of the requirements we've had in guidance as well and to put it in the legislation. So, for example, one of the ones that came up last year was on our designated businesses and our um, cryptocurrency firms, and it was around have we had issued guidance around having two Isle of Man resident directors because it was a means of sort of making sure we had mind and management and control on the island, and that would be put into the to the bill as well. So things that we just wanted to put more firmly in legislation versus having a sit-in guidance will exist. So the Coleman paper's going in the next two weeks looking for the legislative spot. That was Lillian Boyle and Karen Badgerow of the Financial Services Authority there speaking to Tim Wald's Economic Policy Review Committee this week. Thanks for listening. Take care.